We've talked before on this podcast about America's baby tooth survey. Little kids who lost a tooth in Cold War America were encouraged to pop it into an envelope and send it off to the scientists in the big city for important experiments. As a reward, they would get a card and a badge showing that they had helped American science. The card declared, This shows that I am a member of the Operation Tooth Club with full privileges and I'm entitled to wear the membership button. Because science needs my teeth when they fall out, I will continue sending them to Operation Tooth. Scientists had begun collecting baby teeth as a useful way of tracking the presence in the human body of strontium-90. From 1945 until the Partial Test Ban Treaty in 1963, the nuclear powers had been exploding nukes all over the place. Tests there, tests here, tests everywhere. Tests in the atmosphere, tests underwater, tests underground. Tests involving pigs, tests involving ships, involving trees, involving department store mannequins. Tests involving messy houses to see how they would compare against tests against tidy houses. Test everything, why not? Tests in North America, in North Africa, in the Arctic, in Kazakhstan, Australia, China, the Pacific. And it wasn't long before some scientists started to wonder. All these tests, all these nuclear explosions in the atmosphere and in the ocean, and all that filthy fallout they produce, could they perhaps be having some kind of negative impacts on humans and their health? The wider public eventually caught on to this worry once the infamous Castle Bravo test of 1954 went so badly wrong and made it to the newspapers. From that point onwards, many of us started to get switched on to the danger of fallout. The manic optimism of the very early Cold War had started to collapse. All that chatter of how The nuclear age was going to be modern and splendid and it would cure all our ills and light all our cities. And don't worry about it, just sit back, have an atomic-themed cocktail and watch the mushroom clouds from the balcony of your Las Vegas hotel. Well, that was all falling apart. And of course, we were right to be worried. All that nuclear fallout, which was being belched into the air and sea, Yes, it didn't just magically vanish. It was found that one particularly nasty byproduct, strontium 90, was working its way into the food chain and through grass and cows into milk and from milk into children's bodies where it sought out their growing bones and teeth. And that earned strontium 90 the horrible nickname the Bone Seeker. It didn't specifically target children, of course, it's just that as their bones and teeth are growing, Strontium-90 found an easy home there. And so the Baby Tooth Survey was born to measure and track its presence. Scientists were able to appeal to mums and kids to send in your little tinkling baby teeth as they tumble onto the pillow. Because, well, it's it's a lot easier than asking for bereaved parents to send in their children's bones. So send in your little baby teeth and don't ask too many questions about why, but if you must know, 
It's so the scientists can measure how much strontium-90 has gathered in little one's body. And as I say, you'll find an episode on that in the podcast archive. It's called Tracking the Bone Seeker. So the baby tooth survey was cloaked in a kind of cute adventure. It was like joining a cool club for baby boffins. You'll get a badge and a membership card to say you've helped science. And baby teeth come tumbling freely anyway, don't they? It's a natural part of growing up, and so it's easy to gather them. It's easy to ask for them. And they already have a little tinge of magic to them, baby teeth, thanks to their association with the tooth fairy. So already the the shedding of baby teeth comes paired with the excitement of getting big and the prospect of getting money. So it's good news all round for the gumsy nipper. A visit from the tooth fairy, some money under the pillow, then you get to help out science and get a cool badge and membership card. But there are no such nice associations with bone. Bones are scary. They belong to skeletons. They belong in dusty coffins. They break, they snap, they cause pain. They are gruesome and gory. You hope never to see one of your own bones. If you do, something has gone badly wrong. And so, obviously, scientists were less willing to openly ask parents to donate their children's bones. The bone would be just as indicative of the dangers of fallout as the tooth, but you can't gather them in a cute little campaign involving badges and grins. To obtain a child's bone, well... Well, you'd have to be in some horror story, wouldn't you? The body snatchers. We'd have to be back in early 19th century Edinburgh where the old graves can still be seen with cages over them known as mort safes to keep the skeletons safe from the grasping body snatchers. But that's all in the past, of course. We have no need of, of body snatchers these days. Body snatchers belong to the 19th century. And indeed, after the horror and scandal of the body snatchers, Britain brought in the Anatomy Act of 1823, which allowed doctors and medical students to legally have access to any unclaimed bodies. And of course, these days, many people now willingly and in full knowledge of the circumstances donate their bodies to science. Likewise with organ donation. Some of us might be squeamish about it, but it's a good thing. It's a great thing to do. And when people make that decision, they can do so in the knowledge that they will be helping. They will be directly helping others. But when it came to researching the effects of fallout, of measuring and tracking the presence of strontium-90 or plutonium in bones, how on earth do you get parents to offer their children's bones? The bereaved parents couldn't be given the, the comfort of thinking, we'll be helping another child to live if we donate the little bones of our dead baby. No, there is no immediate and happy result from donating your child's bones. If you do so, or if you did so in this case, the bones would be ground into powder and sent off to a lab And there they would join loads of other 
ground-up bones in some great anonymous study lasting years and years with no obvious and happy result. Admittedly, you would be helping science, but it's a very, very indirect way of helping. Unlike with organ donation, you're not helping an individual. You're helping the, the vast and faceless cause of science. Well, you might even argue that in this case you'd be helping the vast and faceless cause of weapons development. And of course, the thought of donating your child's bones must be quite a gruesome one. You'll be forced to imagine the removal of your child's bones to then have them ground to dust, parceled up and sent away. And you won't ever be receiving a grateful letter from little Jimmy in ten years' time saying... The organs you donated have helped him to live and now he's going to become a doctor and help other little sick kids. No, it seems that there would be very little reward and very little comfort and a whole lot of distress at volunteering to donate your child's bones to the study of fallout. And yes, of course, the scientists who were gathering the bones, they knew that very well. And so, how did they get round that tricky point? Well, it was simple. They didn't tell the parents. The pathologist just took the dead children's bones. Let me give you just one awful example before we go further. A British mother called Jean Pritchard delivered a stillborn baby girl in 1957. She told the BBC years later that she was not allowed to dress her daughter's body for the funeral. She wanted to bury her in her christening gown, but was forbidden. This was because doctors had already cut off her daughter's legs so the bones could be used in fallout testing. Mrs Pritchard told the BBC, I asked if I could put her christening robe on her, but I wasn't allowed to. And that upset me terribly because she wasn't christened. No one asked me about doing things like that, taking bits and pieces from her. The scientists who were gathering bones were looking for the presence of strontium-90. I'm not going to get tangled up in science here, as I don't pretend to understand much of it, but keeping it basic, strontium is a metallic element... Naturally occurring, harmless, soft, silvery stuff. Named after a wee mining village in the west of Scotland, Strontian, where it was discovered. But Strontium-90 is a byproduct of nuclear explosions and is radioactive and, of course, dangerous. And it is a so-called bone seeker. Once it has entered the human body, probably through contamination of food and water... Some of it will nestle in the bones and teeth, and this can cause cancer. Children were especially vulnerable here, and especially of interest to science, as growing bones and teeth absorb the most strontium-90. So you can understand why scientists would be keen to study bones and teeth. And, as we mentioned, it was relatively easy to get hold of teeth for that purpose, And the baby tooth survey that we mentioned at the start was a success. 
They got zillions of teeth and drew very clear conclusions. The teeth of children born in Missouri in 1963 had levels of strontium-90 50 times higher than those born before the commencement of large-scale nuclear testing. That very stark and worrying result helped JFK decide that atmospheric testing must be banned, and so it helped us bring in the Partial Test Ban Treaty that same year. So, good results all round, surely. But the scientists couldn't simply turn to the public and say, you've kindly given us your children's teeth, now we would like their bones, please. You can't request a helpful little donation of bones in an envelope. The bones would have to come from dead children, which is obviously a a dreadful thing to, to discuss. But the scientists wanted those children's bones, and so several programs went ahead, without the parents' knowledge, to gather those bones. The biggest gathering of bones for fallout research was America's Project Sunshine. But it also happened at great length in Australia, where, of course, Britain conducted her nuclear tests. We couldn't gather the bones and teeth of British nippers, as, of course, no nuke tests were ever done in Britain, so we had to ask yet another favour of our friends down under. So Project Sunshine began in 1953, and the Australian equivalent started a few years later, in 1957. But it was hard work to find enough samples. Children, thankfully, weren't dying at a particularly fast rate in post-war America or Australia. And so, Willard Libby of the Atomic Energy Commission said in 1955, in a secret meeting, Human samples are of prime importance, and if anybody knows how to do a good job of body snatching, they will really be serving their country. According to the book Maralinga by Frank Walker, Project Sunshine was forced to look far and wide in order to pull in enough bodies. And they asked Britain, Canada, Australia and Japan if they could send a few. Project Sunshine, the book says, focused a lot of their efforts in Houston, Texas, as it was, quote, an impoverished area, and had a plentiful supply of dead babies and children. So this guy from the Atomic Energy Commission, uh, Willard Libby, who was calling for body snatchers, he had quite the reputation. In 1957, the New York Times said he was known as Wild Bill, quote, for his daring research, his bold conclusions, and a courage of his convictions. In that same year, 1957, he spoke to a congressional committee urging the continuation of nuclear tests. People were starting to ask questions about fallout and its impact on human health, but Wild Bill said the development of new weapons would be, quote, crippled if we stopped testing. He also said, and I quote the New York Times here, The risk from radiation fallout was very small in comparison with the everyday risks tolerated by man, or the risk of annihilation 
if the United States surrendered its atomic weapons. I used my access to the New York Times archive there, paid for by my Patreon subscribers. Thank you guys. And I found so many stories from the 1950s where Wild Bill was minimising the risk of fallout. Here are some headlines. No danger seen in nuclear tests. Dr Libby says radioactive fallout is insignificant as world health hazard. Fallout is not the danger. Fallout defence described by Libby. Libby minimises risk of fallout. And in 1958, I found the headline, Libby calls US hottest place in radioactivity. But the twist there was that he was not blaming American nuclear tests for that. He was blaming the Soviets, saying that a major fraction of the fallout detected in America was of Soviet origin. So that's the fella who was putting out a call for patriotic body snatching. The same guy who was urging nuclear tests to keep going and who was minimising the risks of fallout was admitting in private that there are gaps in our research on fallout and so we need bodies. Bring out your dead. Before we go on with Project Sunshine, let's look at Britain. As I said, we had looked to Australia to provide human tissue samples, as that was where we exploded our nuclear tests. And so that was where much of our fallout was drifting and lurking. The British bone collecting scheme got going a few years behind Sunshine, starting in late 1957. And turning again to the book, um, the very angry book, Maralinga by Frank Walker, we learned that letters were sent to the pathologists of all big Australian cities asking for bones, especially the bones of children under five. Femurs, ribs, vertebrae, skulls and sternums would be most useful. But the book tells us there was an immediate problem. It seems that many of the Australian pathologists had already committed to supplying bones to the Americans under Project Sunshine. Nonetheless, the Australian bone supply appeared steady. Quoting the book here, A Department of Supply clerk in Adelaide, Peter Ryan, was overwhelmed as packages of bones taken from little kids suddenly poured into his office. He asked his workmates, what the bloody hell is going on here? The Australians shut the bone sampling down in 1978, but if we turn to the brilliant book Fallout by Fred Pierce, which I've recommended before in this podcast and I love, we will see that similar schemes continued in Britain into the 90s. Now, of course, we had no nuclear testing in this country, but we did have, and do have, nuclear power plants. And so secret tests were done on the bodies of workers at those plants to see what role, if any, radiation played in their death and to see how much plutonium had accumulated in their bodies. People who lived local to Sellafield, for example, were also tested, as were animals. Here's a short extract from the book Fallout by Fred Pierce, 
and it refers to Stella Field. Two sisters, Jane and Barry Robinson, once ran a bird sanctuary in the garden. Then, tests commissioned by a charity found that many of the birds were radioactive. It turned out that they often roosted in contaminated buildings at Sellafield and may have fed on insects and algae around its open-air fuel storage ponds. Sellafield operators had known all along about visiting birds. A public booklet on the atomic factories had observed as long ago as 1954 that radioactive water, quote, does not seem to perturb the gulls which come to the pond from the sea a mile away. It never occurred to anyone that the gulls might pose a risk to the outside world. Not until 1998, that is, when the tests of the Robinson's birds produced a hue and cry. Soon the authorities had strangled 1,500 radioactive birds and put their corpses into lead canisters for burial, along with topsoil, garden plants, and even the sisters' garden gnomes. So yes, um, in Britain, authorities were secretly testing bodies of Sellafield workers, people local to Sellafield, and even having to test and gather and bury plants and birds and garden gnomes. When it was revealed in the 2000s that scientists had been secretly testing the dead bodies of Sellafield workers, there was obviously outrage. And Alistair Darling, who was then the Trade and Industry Secretary, announced an investigation. It would be led by the QC, who had also headed the inquiry into the children's organ scandal at Alder Hay Hospital. That was when organs were taken from dead children without parents' consent. That scandal prompted the Human Tissue Act of 2004, which made it a criminal offence to remove organs or tissue after death without consent from relatives or the permission of a court or coroner. However, before the act came in, rules were obviously much looser, and it was in that looser setting that the Sellafield testing was done. So that is an introduction to what was happening with the gathering of bones, the gathering of tissue, the testing of bodies to find traces of radiation, done of course in secret without consent of the parents or relatives. And in part two, next week we will zoom in on Project Sunshine specifically. And we will look at what happened in Project Sunshine and at the uproar when Project Sunshine was revealed. And just to recap the books that I've quoted from here, the the best one, one that I've often recommended and I will never tire of recommending, is Fallout, Disasters, Lies and the Legacy of the Nuclear Age by Fred Pierce. I reviewed that in The Economist. I absolutely love it. And the other book, which is about Australian nuclear testing, or rather British nuclear testing in Australia, is called Maralinga, and it's by Frank Walker. Um, Not such a great book, but full of interesting uh, and very lurid, very disturbing details. And maybe you'll let me recommend my own book, released two months ago, Attack Warning Red, How Britain Prepared for Nuclear War. 
Now, if you want to hear more about Fallout, I released a bonus podcast episode last week for patrons. It's about nuclear pop music. Every now and then we look at nuclear pop music and I chose last week Breathing by Kate Bush, which is about the dread and the fear and the poison of Fallout. So that's available on my Patreon site, as are many other bonus podcasts. So if you want to join Patreon for £3 a month, you will get access to all my Patreon posts and photographs, of course, but also those bonus podcast episodes. I think there are currently 19 of them, 18 or 19 sitting there. So the recently released one is about Breathing by Kate Bush, and I'll play you a short clip from it here to hopefully (laughs) spark your interest. The song is sung from the perspective of a fetus in the womb who is being subject to the poison of nuclear fallout through her mother's body. As the mother breathes in, so does the fetus. Breathing, um, ingesting, absorbing, means danger and death. But at the same time, breathing is of course the very essence and proof of life. So if this little fetus wants to live, she will have to breathe. But breathing is what will kill her. Poor little gal can't win. So that's waiting for you just now over on my Patreon page. Uh, You can find that at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And let me thank my newest patrons who joined in the last couple of weeks. Louise Connors, Martin B., Jonathan Touch, Brian Bedwell, Peter Brogan, Yana Wright, Dennis Hopp, and also James Spencer, who runs the YouTube site Heritage War Sirens. So pop over to patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo if you want to support the podcast, get various rewards, one of which for £3 a month is extra podcast episodes. And I'll be back next week with Project Sunshine Part 2. Thank you for listening.